I'm Hugh Atchison, and this is Hugh Atchison's Doors the Pod. We finished last week with a third of three episodes that we taped on the West Coast. You can go find those on the podcast as Brooke Williamson takes Los Angeles, Suzanne Goyne pours a burgundy, and Michael Simarusti talks sushi. So definitely give those a listen if you haven't heard them yet, especially if you live in SoCal or are headed there soon. We taped those episodes at three amazing restaurants, all of which you should go to. This week, I'm back at Empire State South, which is my restaurant in Midtown Atlanta, and I sit down with Sam Jones, a 2018 James Beard nominee for Best Chef Southeast, to talk about barbecue and his whole book, Whole Hog Barbecue. It's a brand new book out by 10 Speed Press. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Here's this week's conversation. Sam Jones goes whole hog. I am at Empire State South outside. It's windy, so apologize if the wind's humming around your mics, but I don't think it should be. Uh, in front of me is a man who I've long respected, and he's a, a craft of, of barbecue, and it's Sam Jones. Hi, Sam. What's going on, buddy? You know, another day. How was the drive from Aden? Well, actually, I drove to Newburn, North Carolina, and Newburn. flew. Yeah, we're going to talk about the geography of North Carolina, because, <laughs> well, Sam has Sam Jones Barbecue. Uh, and he was, uh, it, it, and Aiden is a town of seminal barbecue tradition in the Eastern North Carolina style of barbecue. Um, and Sam's got a new book out called Whole Hog Barbecue that he wrote with Daniel Vaughn. And Daniel Vaughn's a really interesting guy. And I've known Daniel for a really long time, but tell me about Daniel. The first time I met Daniel, uh, and I love to tell how media has created this term pitmaster, you know, as a you got to give these people a title. Right. And so Daniel and a photographer was just on this barbecue trip. Comes to Skylight and asks, is Sam in? This is after the eight, and, and one of the guys was like, yeah, he's out back. And I'm in Daniel's mind, you know, he's going to walk into this pit room, and there I am with the sun to my back, you know, this mystique. And what he found was Sam Jones in a trench of mud, about thigh deep where I was working on some water lines. <laughs> and when he walks around the corner, I was disgusted with everything in my life at that point. Right. Everything I touched that day had broken. You're swearing away in, yes. in, in, and, in uh, the sty of the mud. But that was, God, that had to be like six years ago or better. So Daniel Vaughn <laughs> is really the preeminent writer on barbecue culture. He's based in Texas and writes for Texas Monthly. Um, and is is a very, very smart person when it comes to understanding barbecue and the traditions of barbecue. But barbecue is a big tradition, and, and it's, but it's a really vast idea of what we refer to as barbecue. So clarify to us, what is North Carolina barbecue? What is Eastern North Carolina barbecue? Eastern North Carolina barbecue uh, traditionally has been the whole animal cooked over a bed of hardwood coals. Uh, at one time, I don't know what it is now, but that was actually the definition of barbecue in the dictionary. Had it was the whole animal. Wood. But whole the, it animal. was the whole animal. It didn't really specify pork, but the whole animal. And as you move towards western North Carolina and the Piedmont, that changes to just shoulders and more of an introduction of tomato and the sauce. Right. Uh, where historically, eastern North Carolina is going to be, I hate to say vinegar-based because that's a, it's so general. I liken to what we put on ours as a dressing more than a sauce. It is kind of a dressing, because isn't it? Because it doesn't mask. It's a piquant dressing of vinegar. Um, so what else is in that? So you cook your whole hog, 
you're chopping down and into chop barbecue. What's going into it at that last iteration before you're serving it? Well, the one thing that I think sets, and I don't know why my family did this. Folding uh, in the skin. Yep. And you either really, really like it or you really, really hate it. But How can you not like right it? Right on the, the very end. The best part. Yeah. But right on the very end, that skin gets parched on the pit. And as the animal is chopped and cut, these small glass-like shards of pork skin is chopped into the dish. And then literally at that point, it will be the first time any kind of seasoning is applied to the meat. Now, in the book, you talk about that, and that's really your grandfather um, deciding to fold it in because people kept asking for skin, and they'd run out of skin. Right. So there's no more skin. It's all in the barbecue. It changed, but it does, it completely changes the dynamic of that bite uh, because we salt the skin pretty heavy Yeah. during the cook, well, just before the cooking process begins. And so it's salty. You've got the it's textural the, crunch, the fat it's side fat of the skin. Yeah. yeah, there's that low gelatinousness to it, um, but that that just texturizes everything to it. So the skin goes in there, and then you're putting, then you're doing that vinegar dressing. So what's in that? That's uh, literally hot sauce, uh, which is Texas Pete specifically, apple cider vinegar, salt and pepper. Now, in in the world of Chefton, we're always inclined to make everything these days from scratch do you ever make your own hot sauce and pull that in there instead or is it always texas pete it's well that's what it's always been and i'm that guy that you refuse to budge but since traveling and uh, getting to spend time with bright minds such as yourself and I, I could go down a list of people that i've learned so much from and i didn't reinvent the wheel of what my family did but i was able to i think make our food better than it used to be by changing some processes, buying better ingredients, um, making things fresher and more often. Uh, just small changes that uh, I think the food that's served at that restaurant today is better than it was 20 years ago. That's Skylight. And I say that because I was there 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. So you grew up in the restaurant pretty much. Your grandfather, who was the founder of Skylight? So, so, so in Aden, there are three barbecue places, right, really? Within the Jones family, almost. Um, no, there's really it's us, and then a gentleman that used to work for my granddad. It was some a distant cousin, right? Also named Jones. No, uh, Dennis. Okay, is is his name? Last name's Dennis, which was my my great grandmother on my grandfather's side. Her maiden name was Dennis. Okay, and so the you when you go through that book and you'll see a picture in there of a gentleman standing by a pit in 1930. And his name was Emmett Dennis, and that was my granddaddy's uncle. And in that book, while doing some research, I actually found that pit. Oh, wow. I'd had that photo for 10 years or better uh, based on uh, John Shelton Reed published a book. And he sent me this photo, like in 2008 probably, and said, can you find out who this is? It just He said, I was going through some photos at UNC Archive, and the caption just says, barbecue Aiden North Carolina 1930 and there's this man in overalls and I went to old people in the family can you tell me who this is and his daughter was still alive and you know with her glasses on she's comparing photos and I'll never forget her pulling her glasses off she said that's my daddy oh wow that's awesome and so when I Daniel was actually with me when we found that pit and it was like a pure religious experience uh, so is the pit operational now no 
I cooked on it. For, I was the first person to put coals back in it. Um, but pits are made out of just, I mean, it's usually just mason block and wrought iron. So, there's, so this one's really That's really the brilliant. photo. So I'm looking at a, a photo of Sam in the book, and he's at this old pit. And it's an amazing brick pit. It's really cool. So would they be covering this at some point during the cook? With tin. Okay. Because we built pits right over there outside of Empire, and it's just, yeah, cover it with tin. But that's the building. Wow. Uh, And this photo. So who owns that now? uh, It's still in the family. And once I found it, the woods had almost encroached on it to the point that it was very hard to see and it was very cluttered on the inside and I reached out to the, the guy that owned it and I said if you will let me clean this up I promise you I will be on the property anytime somebody's working because I don't want it messed up yeah and that front room where the brick is is a butcher room and there's still a vat in there the table that's bolted to it where they used to stand to hoist the hogs down into the vat to scald them uh, but it was, like I said, every time I was working there, it was like you were standing on holy ground or something in my family. So, in ordering a hog, you're in eastern North Carolina. There's a lot of hogs there, right? Uh, up until a few years ago, there were more pigs than people in North Carolina. Now, you guys had some bad storms a number of years ago, about that time. Yeah. Yeah. But you guys got through. So, are there people, are there local farmers doing hogs the right way these days? Yeah, the people we buy pork from, which is a 40-plus year relationship, also own a stockyard. Yeah. And so all the dirt-raised sows that come through the stockyard come to our restaurants. And we do still have to supplement it with some commodity hog occasionally because it's, they don't get quite enough for us to say, you know, pound the drums about we have dirt-raised pigs. But How uh, big are the hogs that you're getting? Uh, we typically are looking 175 to 195 is the window we like to be in, and they take care of us really good on making sure that that's what we get on it because we get three deliveries a week at each place. Yep. And um, a lot of the times those pigs were killed early that morning when they arrive at us at about lunch or a little after. So how many hogs is Sam Jones Barbecue going through in a week? Uh, we'll typically use about 30. Yep. That neighborhood. Skylight sometimes will do a little more than us on whole hog just because of the lack of option. And that's what it's always been at Skylight. And so, so many people, I could have you in to do some mind-blowing dish, and they're going to walk in and say, let me have a barbecue sandwich coleslaw. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that's what I would order, even if I was cooking there, because that's what you're supposed to do yeah. there. But that that's awesome. So, I'm going to let this siren go by. <laughs> Let's talk about the life of a pitmaster, and the longevity of pitmasters is not long. It's a difficult life. I've got a interrupted sleep and a lot of smoke inhalation. Yeah, at the same time, uh, I, I'm probably one of the few barbecue guys that'll just be completely honest about this pitmaster thing. Uh, my grandfather opened our restaurant with a third grade education. He couldn't read or write. In 1947, he was decades away from even knowing what the term pitmaster meant. You know, my, our folks didn't set out to revolutionize the industry. Um, for that matter, the, the old country song that I was country when country wasn't cool. Right. I say that's my folks in barbecue. 
Because they was, were cooking barbecue when it wasn't cool and when it was in the culinary gutter, uh, you know, where it wasn't respected. Yeah. Uh, especially in the 70s when everybody thought pork was going to kill you. Yeah. And when they pushed for chicken and they just bred the goodness out of pigs. Yeah. They were plugging along because it was a tradition. That's what they always did. They farmed. Well, they're an integral part of that community, too. Yeah, they, but, I mean, they, that cooking barbecue wasn't a, uh, man, I'm going to be the next cool barbecue It guy. wasn't the hipster thing. What, no, when, was, when did barbecue become hip, and why? You know, uh, I really think a lot of it has to do with some of the food TV, and, you know, anytime barbecue's mentioned, automatically a competition comes to mind. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, the circuit probably really expanded on barbecue competitions and things like that, and then reality television tapped into it, and there are a lot of pitmaster challenge shows and things like that. Then, you know, then began a lot of writing on the different styles of barbecue when you're talking about Texas and Memphis and eastern North Carolina and then South Carolina and Georgia barbecue. I but I also think when, how do we classify when Georgia chefs... Barbecue? When Southern food became popular on tables again, coming from culinary geniuses, right? And food, Southern food was starting to get celebrated. Barbecue is such a, a part of that. And when chefs started taking notice of, hey, here's some people that have been doing this one way for so long, and it wasn't so much of they didn't go to culinary school and they don't have my level of food intelligence, but geez, look at what this guy's doing or look at what this lady's doing and has been doing for so many years. And they looked at it more of a craft than it being a spectacular dish, even though the dish is spectacular. Yeah, and I, but I think that that's got such a parallel to so many things in food and beverage that we, we thought we knew everything about something, that, but then we dig into deeper with what's there, we realize that barbecue is just this whole amazing topic that's rich and has so many personalities to it and such a dedication to an old school craft that now we're interested in figuring out what that craft really is and, right. and really looking at it as a craft. And so your term pitmaster, um, I feel like media has created this persona of a person. Do you want Barbecue Ninja? I can call you a Barbecue no, Ninja. But, you know, this persona of a person with dirty blue jeans or overalls standing somewhere holding a shovel, you know, with a smut on their face right. or whatever, and I've been that guy. Yeah. Um, there's somebody in Aden and Greenville, North Carolina that's that person today, so I can be here to chat with you. Right. And so when I do an interview or a show and somebody wants me to say that I'm the pit master or whatever at these restaurants, I was like, no. I know how to cook. I, I, I'm hogs. not cooking every meal today, but everybody still thinks I'm somehow. But what I say is, is so you can't be this quote pitmaster guy, and run your business. Right. What you got to do is different than my family, is teach somebody how to do it. Right. Which is what my family were awful at. But that's what the best chefs do. Is what the best barbecue guys do. Is but you got to teach people. You got to teach it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because. If I'm that guy, I can't be sitting here talking with you. can't do anything. You. You're going to be stoking a fire all day. That's right. And uh, so it's not that you have all passed a point of you're too good to do it or whatever, because some of my fondest times now are, is traveling in cities and sitting around a fire and chatting with people. And yeah. The spectacle of a whole hog cooking always brings, I mean, it's like moss to a neon. Yeah. 
And so I don't consider myself a pit ma- I don't know what makes you a pit master, to be right honest with you. You know, you can go to school to become a chef. Yeah. And actually be knighted or crowned or whatever. Uh, but in barbecue, I don't know that, yeah. I don't know what plateau you hit where you're like, all right, well, I've picked up this title now. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's, let's just say you're really good at running a barbecue shop then. That's, that'll, that'll suffice. I can so. handle a mean shovel of coals. You can, you can. <laughs> so wood, let's talk about wood. What do you look for in wood? I mean, you don't want green wood. It, well, it's going to age how long? A little Six bit. Months? But in our style of cooking, we're not using the wood in its free burning stage. You burn it down where it's yep. just coals. And so at that point, you do want it to be a touch green okay. because the coals are going to come off a little bigger. They'll last longer. You know, as just because the your structure is a little moister and a little bit more tighter That's together. Right. And, you know, if you go out in Texas or anywhere that they're using an offset horizontal yep. flow, they're using that wood in its free burning stage. So it's very important in that style of cook not to have green and to have it seasoned because you need the right kind of smoke coming off of it where your ribs taste like barbecue and not like they were in a house fire. Right. Uh, because of the difference in what smoke is produced based on the age of that wood. Yeah. Where in my style, our smoke is going out the chimney. We're harvesting the coals, using yep. that as a heat source, and then we're relying a little bit on what smoke is left in those coals and then what the rendering of the fat hitting those coals is does. doing. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's two complete different cooking styles. You can't cook brisket worth a darn the way I cook whole hogs. Right. And you can't cook a whole hog worth a darn the way they cook, the way brisket. They cook brisket. Well, because it's, it's, it's two awesome. different styles, yeah, two different yeah. cooking methods, and two different meats. And brisket's <laughs> totally reliant on being a really fatty cut of beef to really slowly cook and really be unctuous at the end whereas whole whole hogs just is just different it's just a different style of doing it so what kind of wood are you using though mesquite mostly mainly oak okay uh, because i think if you go back you know i mean now a lot of people dive in and spin yarns about this wood and that wood and i always say that i feel like your old joints that started cooking with wood because that was the only way to cook it they weren't having wood shipped in anywhere yeah they were using what was native to the area yeah what's in the backyard that's why there's so many trees on that 1930s pit right (laughs) they've been using it for a while but that's oh excuse me just crack my knee on huge table here i've got a skirting on the table um but i think that they used what was native just because that's what was there yeah Yeah. especially in our area uh, east of North Carolina, especially just North Carolina in general, uh, agriculture was and is still such a big thing. Tobacco in eastern North Carolina was huge. Um, Are you seeing a transition in North Carolina because uh, to different crops because of a you know a, a decline in tobacco overall? Oh yeah, I mean my family farmed tobacco up until the uh, late '80s, early '90s. You know, the largest crop in Georgia now is uh, is one of the largest crops is blueberries. Really? It's taken over a lot of th- tobacco farms, uh, or not blueberry farms. You know, and that... Largest the, producer of blueberries in the state. The days of dummy farmers are over. Oh, yeah. You've, You've got, got to be, be smart. you got to be yeah. smart because now it's based on futures and all this stuff. Yeah. Where back when tobacco, you could carry it to market, to the tobacco warehouse. I used to go to the tobacco warehouse yeah. with my grandfather. And, you know, you had the option of... If it didn't bring what you wanted to bring, you carry it home. Yeah. 
Yeah. And where now, when I was young, it was nothing to pick the phone up at Skylight and a farmer say, I need 20 small trays or I need 32 sandwiches where they were feeding uh, so many times in the South they referred to as farm hands. Right. Uh, I don't know where that term came from, yeah. but it was staff, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And when I was growing up, I probably knew 30 people, 35 people that farm tobacco in yeah. our area. Now I know three. Yeah. And probably next year it'll be two. And, and it's done on contract one. now, yeah. you know, straight with a company. And um, But that was such a, a, a big thing. And they cured tobacco with wood. Yeah. Your old stick barns yep. was wood-fired, uh, flu-cured tobacco. And it was a tradition at the end of the farming season. You know, well, I say the end of the farming season, the end of tobacco. That under that same shelter, the lean-to off of that tobacco yeah. barn, they dig a hole. And get a hog in there. Put some rods yep. or tree limbs or whatever to suspend it. And that same wood coals that they used to fire these barns, fire these hogs. Yeah. And so when you think about what wood influences what, mm-hmm. I think that over a period of time, that's what just created that palette. Uh, you know, because there's different woods produce different smokes. Yeah. And if you used mesquite on my style, it may be a little strong. You know, hickory seems to be a little bit stronger than oak at times. Yeah. And um, But I really think that all over the country where these regions of barbecue exist, that those woods... Uh, that are native to the area somewhat define that style. Yeah. So in 2003, Skylight was recognized as an American classic by the uh, James Beard Foundation. Tell me that story, because that's a great story. Uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, every time I tell the story, it brings about a laugh, because this is, uh, I explain the just pure bliss of ignorance. And so at the time, I was in college, and I come in one afternoon, and when I walked in, my grandfather's standing there, he said, uh, some lady called from New York about some award, and I told her you'd call her back. <clears throat> and so I That walked, was your job as the youngest of the generation? I guess. <laughs> I walked to the storage room, and I remember that was the first time that I on purpose dialed a 212 area code. And I get on the phone with this lady that was a communications company that was handling things for the awards that year, and... She starts explaining that you know Skylight's gonna be given this America's classics, and my first question was, how much is it gonna cost? That's a good question. Because she's it's saying, always expensive. She's saying you know they want somebody to come receive it, and she chuckled a little bit on the phone. I said, ma'am, I'm just mm-hmm. asking questions that I know I'm gonna have to have an answer for, because I knew that was what my grandfather. You're about would to get ask. grilled by grandfather from grandfather. That's right. How much is it gonna cost? <laughs> And literally that year, it was at the Marquee Marriott in Times Square, and I want to think all them was like 1200 bucks or something like that. And I said, well, I can't make any promises. I'll call you back. And I'll never forget walking that front counter, and it was kind of in the through period, you know, at 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. My dad's on one side of the counter, my granddaddy's on the other side, you know, and they're just staring out these front windows, you know, waiting on the next person to come in. My uncle's standing at the chopping block, and I said, okay. And I've got all this written down on like a green guest check. I said, uh, from what I can gather, this is a big old deal. And he's Did just, they know who James Beard was? No. Nor did I. And I said, before I can gather, this is a pretty big old deal. And uh, I said, this lady likened it to the Oscars as it pertains to food. And 
my granddad just immediately said, well, I don't want to go. He looks at my dad, and my dad never even looked at him, just like kind of brushed it off. My uncle, he's just already shaking his head. And then there's me. I'm 22 years old. Had you been to New York? No. And so, You wanted to go to New York. <laughs> that's the long and the short of it. And so my grandfather looks at me and says, you want to go? And I was like, sure, be glad to. And I called all of my friends, like all my boys that we hung out. Hey, you can go to New York. It'll cost you $119. That was the flight. Yeah. And nobody went with me. It was $119 return. That's a cheap flight. Yeah, it was a round trip. That's awesome. They just didn't want to go to New York. And so <laughs> I go up there by myself. And, I mean, you know, living in Aiden, North Carolina, you're looking through a pretty small keyhole at the world. And you're basing a lot of it on how you're raised and, you know, all these things you were told. I think I was there that year. And it was uh, the first year I was nominated. Okay. I think I was there. I think it was 03. Huh. But so I put on my black tie and went to those awards. And I remember calling my dad that afternoon when I was going up to my room to change because I passed the floor and I saw it was going to be televised and all this stuff. I was like, man, I'm telling you, this is a big deal, whatever this is. <laughs> And uh, if my memory serves me right, uh, Mr. Apple was who gave me the award. R.W. Apple. Yeah. He was one of the best food writers ever and just was a seminal food writer for the New York Times for years and years. Yep. I remember backstage, he had his glasses down on the end of his nose, just about like looking at his notes. And he turns and looks at me, and it, it, I'm nothing. You know, I know nothing about nothing. I hadn't done anything to warrant being there other than the fact that nobody else in my family wanted to go. And he looks at me and he says, uh, well, Sam, you know, we couldn't just pick one barbecue place from North Carolina. We'd never be able to go back. He said, so we, you know, it had to be you and uh, Wayne Monk. He said, what do you think about that? And my just not knowing any better, I said, well, I guess everybody's got a right to be wrong. And off on the stage we went. <laughs> well, that's a good entry. Yeah. And so, um, man, I'll never forget that night. Uh, I was went around the reception, and just at, at the time, you know, I was a biscuits and potato guy. Yeah. And I couldn't appreciate these dishes that I was tasting. Didn't care for wine. And I had Coca Cola was one of the sponsors that year. And I had walked out in the vestibule area and found a cooler. Like, you know, one of these, like, waist-high yeah. coolers. And I open me a short Coca-Cola, and I sit down. You know, I'm wearing the brass and all. This lady sits down beside me, and she's probably early 40s at the time. And she asked me a question. I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, will you say that again? <laughs> and it was completely uh, my accent and the fact that I said, yes, ma'am. And I ended up going to all these after parties with her and her assistant. Who was it? I have no idea. I do not remember this lady. I got back to my room that morning about 4.30. And because her assistant. 25 Coca-Colas later. Held the umbrella. It was raining so bad that night. And this man held an umbrella for us to walk from this place to this place to this place. Which to me, I was like, wow, who is this lady that a man just walks with you and holds your umbrella? And uh, New York. It's different. Yeah, different that's there. right. Different and from so, uh that was a it was a fun night and in retrospect it was embarrassing that i didn't know on the flip side i think that that was one of the 
good things about it. Yeah, not knowing what you're getting into and getting into it and just it, yeah, but yeah. not realizing that you know that you your family and your restaurant and all that is being recognized, recognized for, by for such yeah. by the end all be all pretty much. Do your dad and your granddad regret not going at that point then? Uh, my dad probably don't care either way. My granddaddy was after he finally understood. You know, after I got home and some press wanted to cover the fact then he realized he had something to be proud of and he would smile when he'd hold that medallion in yeah. his hand to take a photo or something yeah and and so the fast forward to last year and i'm shooting something in the restaurant and my phone just in my pocket to the point that i thought something was wrong with somebody in my family right and i was like hey guys we're gonna have to pump the brakes just a second and I got my phone out, and I just started scrolling before I opened it up, and it was congrats, 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 congrats. And I was like, what in the world? And then finally, I saw one person said, congrats on your nomination. Yeah. And I looked at my business partner, and I was like, Google to James Beards. Because, in no disrespect, I don't, like, follow all that that's, stuff. That's usually Normally what I, I do is I'll see out. somebody's social media, and I'll realize, all right, today was nomination day. Yeah. And then I'll go through the list and start texting and calling my friends, hey, yep. You know, awesome that you were nominated type of deal. And he found it before I did. And I looked at them guys and I said, y'all, I got to step in the back real quick. <laughs> because my eyes were welled up. Yeah. Because I didn't, you know, never do I consider myself as talented as somebody like you and Asher Christensen and Donald Link and Sean, all these people that I've become great friends with and I've learned so much from. But it, you know, it's two different things, in my opinion, on some levels. And my business partner's standing there, his eyes are glassy. I'm trying to get my stuff together so we can go back out here and finish this thing. Yeah, still shooting. And he looks at me because, you know, I talk a lot about it in my book, how my family really didn't set us up to succeed. Right. It was uh, let's withhold knowledge so we can be the smartest people in the room, not realizing that you're handicapping the next generation. Yeah. Yeah, you gotta, and, you gotta tell the secrets. And, and Michael said, uh, man, he said, he's looking on his phone. He said, it's, he said, this is crazy. He said, but the fact that it's not, it says Sam Jones Barbecue yeah. besides your nomination. He said, nobody can take that from you. And it's when true. he said that, I had a whole nother crying spell. Yeah. Because I have a saying that the turtle didn't get on the fence post by himself, uh, somebody helped him up there. And I'm a case in point of that. Of I ain't that guy that, man, let me tell you what I did. Yeah. Because so many people, uh, I swear, I, I start my acknowledgments in this book by saying, this is the hardest part of the whole process. When you start thinking about giving it, credence to all the people who helped you along the way. Yeah, and you think, you know, I mean, so I doubt I'll get to write another one. And so this is like my life up to being 38 years old, and you're summarizing four generations of family and all these things. But that's, that's the beautiful thing about this book is it's not just about cooking a whole hog. It's about the story of where you're from and how how it, Skylight was built and everything. Well, I feel like it's a glimpse into like real life. And, you know, it's not a fairy it's the tale. It's of Aiden. Yeah. Right. But, I mean, here this was a family that for 40-some years just worked and yeah nobody took notice of it <laughs> I, I might have picture a 
page 31 of the book is this amazing, massive house fire. And you're a volunteer firefighter. I'm the chief. You're the chief. In Aiden, North Carolina. I didn't realize you were the chief. Yeah. Um, This year will make me 22 years in the fire service. So how much of a... How much of a job is that? Um, we typically, our EMS is paramedic and is paid 24-7. But we run somewhere around 350 calls a year. And we operate two stations, four engines, two tankers, a rescue unit, and a brush unit. And we're responsible for all the rescue work, vehicle extrications. That's in addition to any fire-related situations. And we so cover how many, 48 square miles. 3 o'clock in the morning phone calls does that beget? Well, we wear pagers. Right. And so we're dispatched out of Central 911. And we also have, get alerts on our phones. And so when I'm out of town, I'll get an alert that we have a call, and I can go over to an app and listen to the radio traffic. Yeah. Because, you know, when you're in something that long, you can listen to the radio. And know exactly who's you talking. Can, but you can just about know... Where they're at, what corner's on they're, fire. They're painting a picture for you. Yeah. And uh, I listened to a call we had yesterday where it came in as a commercial structure fire. Captain arrived on the scene and said nothing visible from the exterior, which to me, is whatever's going on is pretty minuscule. Right. Because there's nothing, no smoke visible, no yeah. nothing. Yeah. Ended up, it was a hot water heater at shorted out. Okay. No, uh, it, that was the quietest call right. in Aiden that week. So how many people are in Aiden? What's the population? And the corporate limits are just shy of 6,000. And the rural area that we cover is probably another 9,000. And how many people are coming to Sam Jones Barbecue who are nowhere, they're not from anywhere near there? Uh, just recently, man, and it's kind of crazy. I, this has happened at Skylight many times. Um, shoot, we even had somebody call last year and ask, did we have a place they could land a helicopter? And our manager said, actually, we do. There's a two-acre grass lot next to the restaurant. You can land it right there. Did they land? Yeah. Yep. It came for lunch. Nice. But uh, I've had Uber drivers tell us about picking people up at the airport in Greenville, which only has American that flies to Charlotte five times a day. Right. Where they picked these people up, brought them to our restaurant. They asked, would you just hang tight and carry us back where they had flown in privately. Yeah. Came to eat. And left. Go back to the airport, fly on out. Yeah. Uh, That's the life. It's not too bad. Apparently so. And so <clears throat> Skylight, fortunately, has been, it's had that destination component. Right. That for the longest time, I mean, don't get me wrong, my family appreciated it, but they didn't, weren't fully aware that if it weren't for that component, the locals can't sustain us. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's town of 6,000 people can barely sustain one restaurant, let alone two. Correct. So. And so it's nothing on a Saturday to you could pull the line and there may be a farmer from 10 miles away and somebody from Chicago yeah. that drove three hours out of their way on vacation. Yeah. But people to, go to barbecue routes too yeah. and uh, do all that. And barbecue's a big deal that way. So in in, in mentorship of barbecues, uh, there's so many people out there doing great barbecue, but uh, we talked about Will Durney um, up in New York who's doing amazing barbecue at, what's this place called, Hometown? Hometown. Hometowns. And we were chatting earlier. I met Billy before he ever opened that restaurant. Yeah. And uh, one thing I can say about old Billy, and he and I and Pat Martin, uh, 
we refer to ourselves sometimes as three amigos because we do so much together. We're all like-minded. And Pat Martin is based where? Nashville. Nashville, and Tennessee. Pat's got like 87 restaurants or something now. Man, I always, I hope, I hope when Pat listens to this, Pat's probably opened two Hugh Babies while me and you have been doing this podcast. I like the name, though. <laughs> I don't want to get it. But we're always joking on Pat about that. But, yeah. Uh, Billy is the same guy as he was when I met him that first time when nobody knew his name. Yeah. He won't cook in no barbecue other than at home. Yeah. And uh, I could call him right now, but hey, man, I'm in a tight in Atlanta. Let me figure it out. Let me figure out how to get there, or let me make a phone call. And then we got people who get a lot of attention and are amazing barbecue practitioners like Aaron Franklin uh, in Austin, who's just amazing. Around here, we have a number of people that are really good, but a guy who keeps uh, losing restaurants to fire. Now, it's odd that you're a firefighter because fire is so prevalent in barbecue restaurants, too, that they burn to the ground after being saturated with fat over the years. I don't know that you can actually call yourself a barbecue joint if you hadn't had a fire. I hadn't had a good fire. <laughs> yes, but that, it just comes with the territory. Brian Furman is bees crackling, and Brian's doing a great job. But, um, one of the things I noticed in barbecue uh, is that it, it no longer is just about the barbecue, because sometimes you can find great barbecue in a rural spot around Georgia, North Carolina, and the barbecue's really good, and it's whole hog, but the sides are just not. But now there's, like, the skill sets are really coming into everything. So the cornbread's top-notch, and it's not jiffy. And, you know, there's amazing freshness and green beans and things like that. Yes. Cooked the right way. But you've got a ton of sides in your book that sort of showcase that. that and the, that the collard recipe. And the collard recipe. One of the collards that, that we use. Matter of fact, the, the collards we use are grown on a farm that's been in our family for probably 40 years or better. My uncle delivers those clean already destemmed to the restaurant three times a week and literally my partner and i we worked on that recipe for two months but you're cooking it with a whole uh, is pig's head that's it? we use the, the head we'll smoke a head and then use that to make our stock okay when and you're then, doing a whole hog is the head still on there typically yes okay um at sam jones we do take the heads off enough for our collard recipe. Right. And we smoke it with garlic cloves for about four, four to six hours. Use that to make our stock. And then pull the cheek meat out of that head. And that's going to go in the greens. And that's the best part. Right. That cheek meat's so good. But growing up, if collards were on the table, that was the only time that I'd be at lunch or dinner. Or actually, we called it dinner and supper. Um, dinner time is different in the South. Yep. Dinner time is at the stroke of 12 o'clock. Yep. And supper is whatever time you knock off. Yep. And But any time collards were on the table would be the only time vinegar was on the table as a condiment. Yep. Any pepper, t- pepper vinegar? Or tip- just straight it, up? There'd be both. Yep. It would be just plain apple cider vinegar, sometimes white vinegar, and then pepper vinegar. Yep. And so when we were working on that recipe, I was like, if this is the palate, that everybody in our region is, is accustomed to, to, then let's try to make it where it's just like our port. Like, we encourage you to taste it before you put anything on it. Like, taste it like we made it. Yeah. And then if it doesn't suit you, then you can do add a little you sauce to. to it. So, what sauces do you use then? I mean, I mean I, like, Eastern North Carolina bar- barbecue doesn't usually need sauce or doesn't even have sauce, but. Well, it's basically that vinegar-style dressing yeah. that we were chatting about earlier that doesn't mask it. You know, so many times people think barbecue sauce is this thick, 
you know, it almost like stick to a wall and run slowly down it where it almost sits on top of whatever yeah. you apply it to. And Eastern North Carolina is not like that. It's thin, lightly applied. So in the recipe, it's three quarts apple cider vinegar, two and a half cups of sugar, half a cup of crushed red pepper, a lot of black pepper, chili powder, Texas peat, and then the addition of a little barbecue sauce, and that's probably just to give it a little textural component towards just, the yeah, end. Yeah, but it's still super thin. Yeah, and that's, I love the taste of vinegar, and I think that our palates have changed in the last 20 years as the average Americans to really appreciate acid in food. But it's funny, in Georgia and North Carolina, we've always loved vinegar because it's prevalent in collards. It's prevalent in a lot of the stuff that we have, and then pickling as well, where it's, I think it's a culture that's gotten used to acid in food a long time ago before it was hip. Do uh, you know uh, Fred Thompson? Yes. So Fred, I was at an event once. Why don't you explain who Fred Thompson is? Because that... God, how, what was what was Fred's acting? Now that I don't know. Okay, I'm I'm trying to think of where I was at, but he had put together this. It was a barbecue thing, and he was tasked with speaking and giving his theory on barbecue sauce in North Carolina. Right, and whether he was right or not, what he had to say made sense, and he was talking about as the eastern shore was settled and essentially the natives were teaching these people how to roast whole animals and he said in those times tomatoes were considered to be poison right well tomato leaves are tomato leaves are poison and vinegar was used as a preservative more so than a flavor component right yeah which made sense and so if you think all those hundreds of years that that Vinegar is what you've grown accustomed to as it being a, a flavor more so than a preservative. Right. Uh, and it made sense. And he talked about westward expansion. And he actually had a timeline on when they realized tomatoes wouldn't kill you. And they started showing up in food applications. And yep. I was like, man, whether old Fred's right or not, that makes sense. It suddenly got ketchup on the tables. Yeah. It, it changed. <laughs> so what other what other barbecue guys are you seeing? Like I was mentioning Brian Furman, who's br- he's Cracklin, well, and then uh, Rodney, but you, like, uh, Charleston. So, uh, man, I'm a guilty about being a storyteller more so than I'd rather tell stories and cook barbecue. But that barbecue is where I glean all my stories from. Right. Uh, my, the first event I ever did was Charleston Wine and Food. Uh, SFA had shot this short documentary film on us, and when I watch it now, uh, I almost feel like that we all had a stroke just before we shot it. Yeah, because we're just regurgitating things that have been told to us for all these years. didn't matter if they were true or not. Right. And But they shot that film, and didn't matter. It wasn't that big a deal to me. Uh, back then, we were in that period of not making money after my grandfather had died. And on the film, you can actually see hogs being carried through a building with no roof on it, where our pit house, our main pit house, had burned down, and we didn't have the money to put a roof put on. Put a roof on. We were yeah. using the house next door. And so later, they asked me if I'd go to Big Apple Barbecue. And they were going to show this film, Blue Smoke. You know, wanted me to excuse me. That year it was going to be on the street. And, but basically show this film, me do a little q and I'm sure I'd be glad to do it. And I remember walking around Big Apple Barbecue going, how do you get here? Like, holy crap, 
we've been cooking barbecue, you know, half a century. And it just blew my mind. And I walked around. I remember taking photos of these guys, really, looking at them like they were just pure rock stars. Yeah. And now a lot of those guys are my closest friend, Pat Martin's. Yeah. That's where I met Pat Martin. Yeah. Uh, it was 09 at Big Apple Barbecue. And so that was followed by John T. reached out and asked me what I'd do in an event in Charleston. They wanted to show this film, have some chefs to build food around our trio. And nobody in my family had ever cooked away from home. I didn't even make a note when I was talking to him because I just knew I ain't doing that. I'm literally, I'm just on the phone. Let me tell this man what he needs to hear. And then a little bit later on, I get a call from somebody at the festival, you know. Oh, this is real. It's and I went, oh, I did tell old boy I'd do it. And, I man, I tried to get out of it as hard as I could. Got down there. I was so nervous. They had, this was the second year SFA was doing this event. Rodney had done it the first year and was in the exact same position I was. Scared to death. You never been out. To, you know, I've been to Big Apple Barbecue, but all of a sudden to, all right, it's you. Yeah, you're cooking. And so Rodney met me that morning, that next morning at 3.30 in the morning. We put my hog on, and I think we pulled about a good 24 hours together. Got to know each other. And since that weekend is when the whole Fat Back Collective thing was born. And, I mean, just to show my ignorance that night, uh, ignorance and bliss, but they showed the film. Mr. Julian Van Winkle had underwritten the bourbon. And as they wanted us to film ends, we come through the front door of this restaurant, this pig on a tray, and these people that paid all this money for their tickets stood to their feet and applauded. And I just got through watching that film, and when I got to the part about my granddaddy, you know, I teared Tear up a little up. bit because I'm yeah. an emotional guy. But as we were walking to the kitchen, I thought, you know, we've been cooking barbecue for a long time to no applause. Yeah. And on the line that night was Brian Pruitt, Donald yep. Link, Sean Brock, Stephen. The list goes on of these just superstars on top of being super intelligent and super kind. And that was the company I was in on my first event. Which showed you that they're your equals and in food. now are some of my greatest friends. Yeah. Um, and oh, so, so shows you, that you talk about barbecue people, this, Rodney then. and I have, God, we've shared cars, hotel rooms, I mean, all over the country. Yep. Billy and Pat and I last year went to Sweden together. Uh, you guys cooked instructing, Yeah, just teaching Sweden. barbecue. Nice. Uh, last, well, three weeks ago, I was in L.A. with Billy, Pat, Aaron, uh, Adam Perry Lang, because we're all great friends now. We, yeah went out to do this thing for LA Times and it was APL's one year anniversary. And so we all got together for that. And um, it's- Did, it's did so the prices of that in Perry Lang's restaurant make you think that you could charge $95 for barbecue in Aiden, South negative. North Carolina? No, I would negative. be- um, <laughs> Will not work. We would be spoken of in fly. retrospect. <laughs> and possibly burned at the stake. You mentioned that after your grandfather died that the business had some hard times, but that was, what year was that? He, passed, he he got out of the business due to health in 04. Right. It was abrupt. Literally, he closed on a Saturday and never returned. Uh, some issues with the procedure he had done. 
resulted in his mind not being correct. Right. Uh, I mean, he right. may talk to you for three hours normal, and he may see a giraffe run across the field in the distance. Right. And uh, so somebody had to be with him all the time and all that. And so if you take from 04 to when he exited until he died in 2006, the sentiment, and don't get me wrong, 05 wasn't a stellar year because that was when oil prices went way up. Right. Due to, you know, Katrina hit. Yeah. And the economy was already getting a little shaky. But 05 wasn't that bad. We still didn't, you know, we weren't real pleased. And in 05, that was when I was in that car accident. Right. Uh, you know, my grandparents on that side of the family, as I tell in the book, they want the grandparents you see at Thanksgiving and Christmas. Like, we work together. Yeah. I see them every day. Yeah. And in six months' time, I buried my girlfriend of a long time due to an accident, and both of them. It was all yeah. in a six-month window. And when he died, and this is where perception becomes reality, that man hadn't cooked a pig in 10 years or better. Right. But he was a fixture at that counter. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it was in you know all the newspapers in North Carolina, legendary barbecue man dead at 77 was the headline. And it was like you flipped the light switch. And our sales started to go down. All these rumors were circulated that we're going to sell the restaurant. We've already sold the restaurant. The barbecue ain't the same since Pete died. And it was like, but he hadn't cooked a pig in 10 years. We're doing the same thing we'd always been doing. Yeah. Which, don't get me wrong, now I know all of it wasn't correct. We've corrected it now. And I, I remember uh, just before we opened Sam Jones, this guy comes in. And he's one of those people who's just going to make a scene. You know, There's nothing you can do to satisfy him. And he threw his food, walked behind the counter and threw his food in the trash can behind the counter and went on to say how it wasn't worth a shit. And he was speaking real loud. And I was, one of the boys hollered at me because I happened to be in the kitchen. I walked down and I said, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. What's, what's wrong with it? Oh, it just ain't worth a damn since Pete died. I said, okay, that's your opinion. What was wrong with it? And he's just sitting there staring at me. He said, it just ain't the same since Pete died. I said, you know what? You're exactly right. It's better. I know. <laughs> I said, because this is your first time on this side of the counter. I've been here my whole life. Yeah. I can promise you it's different yeah. for the better. Yeah. And, uh, but you take all those names we talk about in barbecue, all those guys, there ain't no secrets between us. Right. Uh, I could text Pat Martin right now and be like, hey, man, I need some insight on whatever it may be. Yeah, what, and he's going to open book. He'll tell you. But not just recipes, like help on the business side of yeah. things and whatever. All of us. So how'd you write the ship business-wise? I mean, how'd you, how'd you pull it out in the if late, it, to like 2007, 2008? If it hadn't have been for Southern Foodways Alliance and our property being paid for, mm-hmm. Skylight Inn would have went out of business. Yeah. And this benchmark barbecue place as it's held uh, because it was taken for granted so long would have been a thing of the past. And I think being able via John T, SFA, uh, exposed, because that one event turned into this event and that event, and I was able it to finally... It turned into a fabric and a network of people who were supportive Yeah, but it, I, it was like all of a sudden, like that business skipped a generation, yeah. and it went from everybody knowing who Pete Jones was... To all of a sudden, this Sam Jones guy was able to get out of that shadow and 
forge a little ground. Yeah. And it was, as we were chatting earlier about that turtle on the fence post. Yeah. Um, I couldn't have ascended to any level if it hadn't been for people because all this was unrealized to me. Sam Jones Barbecue one. I didn't want to call it Sam Jones Barbecue, but as so many of my friends were like, you need to do this, you need yeah. to do this. I didn't know how to open a new restaurant, but on my opening day, Billy Durney, Rodney Scott, Pat Martin, Nick Bahakis. Uh, Pat Martin ran Expo. He was in the window. Billy was running food. Rodney was running food. And that's because that's it, the bar- barbecue world is a family. Yeah, yeah but I mean, those really guys pause their life. Yeah. And it's like, hey, yeah, but they, we'll they, they pause their life and were there because you'd be there too for them. Oh, and they know that. Without and that's how this works. Moment's notice. Yeah. It's all I need. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sam, you're a treat to talk to. Um, you guys, Whole Hog Barbecue is published by 10 Speed Press, which is a great publishing. Who edited the book? Emily Timberlake okay. was the editor, and uh, I, she has departed 10 Speed, and that was one of her last projects that she did. Well, it's a good one. That? Denny Kilbert did the, did the photos, and it is just... We had some good times working on this. The light in the uh, pictures is great. I mean, some late nights in my barn and on the farm. Uh, I met Denny years ago via SFA. Yeah. And when this thing came to be, and I'm chatting with the publisher, and they said, give us three names and you know, for, that you'd like to work with on photography, and his was one of them. And they said, we'd love to work with Denny because he had just worked on Isaac's book. Yep. And I said, well, let me That's text Isaac him. Isaac Toops. Yep. And I said, let me text him just to see if he was interested in it. And, yep. uh Denny won't that guy that I talk to on a regular basis, but, you know, we always were cordial with each other. And, you know, he was like, yeah, man, I'd love to. And the first time he came to Aiden, and he, him and Daniel and his assistant, Joe Vadreen, I think is the correct spelling of his last name, or pronunciation, I should say, were staying in my sister's home next door, which is this huge mansion. And I joke on her about it all the time. And so, based on her schedule, because she's single now, these boys were staying in her house for two days before they ever crossed paths with her. Oh, the house is so big? Well, that, and you know, they'd be pulling the late nights of me. Right. They'd be asleep when she was getting up to go to work. And, man, there was a night that I mean, we had just, we went over to Vivian's and crushed oysters and put a terrible dent in everything they had that could defile you. Came back, got in my shop, and Denny was like, man, let's play some music. And we started playing. It got to be about 3 o'clock. My wife was not very pleased, <laughs> to say the least. And the next morning, we're all out on the farm because we were going to be working. We were shooting, building this burn barrel and how to go about it and all that. We were all sucking our thumb. And my sister sends me this video and says, are these grown men that are staying in my home? Because her dining room table had sticks on it uh-huh. in the centerpiece. Oh. It was like, let's take some sticks from outside. Stylized. Yeah. There was a pair of pants in the kitchen floor. Okay. That had just been exited with everything in them, belt and all. Right. The pantry was open. This is all in this video. And there was tortilla chips and a tub of cream cheese in the sink where they had gathered that's a, that's a bad last snack, tortilla chips and cream cheese. Yeah. 
I don't know if that one's going to sit well in the stomach. We have laughed about that night so many times. Uh, The shot in there of my knife roll. Yeah. That was in my shop at about 2 in the morning. And it was just, I had it laid out. I just got back from somewhere. Yep. Denny and them had got to town. And it was like 2 in the morning. Everybody's run down. Denny gets his camera out. Starts well, taking pictures. That's what a good and, photographer uh, does. Notices yeah. the little things. But, yeah, I there. think this uh, the whole team was that. But that's what it is, writing a book. It you was never perfect. know what you're getting into when you first say yes, because you're like, oh, this will be easy. I do this shit every day. And then you're like, oh, my God. And you're like, this. I've got like 10 years to do it, it feels like. Yeah. And then all of a yeah. sudden you're like, I oh, need another month. Two days. Yeah, yeah, I need and then another you're month. Like, uh, yeah, can I get three more weeks? I had uh, my first panic attack. Oh, uh-huh. Because of the deadline on this book. <laughs> book deadlines will do that to yeah. you. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, Sam, have a good uh, weekend here in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, you're here going to be cooking up some barbecue, I think. Sounds yeah. Good. We're gonna, uh, we got an event tonight, tomorrow, and then um, I'll do a little signing for whoever for wants book. to be there tomorrow. Got to sell those books. We need to sell a few anyway. So, thanks, Sam. Always a pleasure, Hugh. Good to see you, bro. Yeah, man. I taped this episode of Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot on location at Empire State South in Atlanta, Georgia. Scott Porch produces the show. Mackenzie Mazell edited this episode. You can follow Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and come back on Tuesdays for a new episode. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, where I am incessantly boring or exciting, depending on your, you know, what you like. But find me at Hugh Atchison. Thanks for listening. Eat well. Peace well.